Take your Bible, your copy of God's Word, and turn to Numbers chapter 20. It would remind you that though authored by humans, the primary author of the Bible is God Himself. And because of that, His infinite wisdom, He can have multiple readers in His mind when He wrote it, and in fact did, and one of those sets of readers when He wrote Numbers 20 were those of us in the room today. So we can comfortably say this is God's Word for us today, His holy conversation. He speaks to us in Numbers chapter 20. The people of Israel, the whole congregation came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed at Kadesh. Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses, saying, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? There's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels! Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank in their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom, Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt, and we lived in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And when we cried to the Lord, we heard our voice, and sorry, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. 
And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, You shall not pass through, lest I come out with the sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, We will go by the highway. And if we drink of your water, I and my livestock, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. And they journeyed from Kadesh, and the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came to Mount Hor. Where the Lord said to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor that the border in the land of Edom, let Aaron be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land that I have given to the people of Israel, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eleazar his son and bring them up to Mount Hor and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son and Aaron shall be gathered to his people and shall die there. Moses did as the Lord commanded and they went up Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation and Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain, and when all the congregation saw that Aaron had perished, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron thirty days. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us not just in the reading of your word, but in its preaching. Give me clear words. Give us hearts of faith, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen. Never build your statues of the living. Never build your statues of the living. That's what the article said. I remember reading it years ago in the middle of the Joe Paterno scandal. Some of you are old enough to remember that. Some of you don't care. It's sports. I'm not mad. Joe Paterno, Joe Paz, he was belovedly known, is the winningest coach in college football history in the top tier. Uh, he was the coach of Penn State for about a million and a half years. He maintained a winning program almost his entire time there and has more wins than most humans can count. The inconvenient thing about Joe Paterno is that he was so winning and so you know, successful that uh, Penn State had already built a statue for him just outside the stadium which was extremely awkward when uh, the allegations of a cover-up of um, child abuse in his program came to the public light. And we, ha- we have to say allegations. The allegations were that one of his assistant coach was, coaches was actively um, participating in abusing uh, young men. Uh, but even in the midst of, as they went to uh, investigate and figure it out, and the police went in to go and handle it. Joe Paterno uh, unfortunately died in the middle of it, never got a chance to actually answer his accusers. 
So you have this really just tremendously awkward situation with a man who is innocent until proven guilty by our court of law, but by every measure seems to be guilty, but doesn't actually have a chance to answer his accusers because he's dead and has the winningest legacy in college football history, but seemingly, allegedly, was an absolute creep in how he handled younger men and his program. I remember reading an article that kind of assessed the entire thing, summed up the entire mess. And that was the tagline, never build your statues of the living. As long as they're alive, they can still let you down. Unfortunately for Paterno, he did it after he died as well. Numbers chapter 20 puts us into a really kind of similar awkward predicament. As we've been reading through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and now into Numbers and hearing the story of God's people, there have been a few kind of bright and shining examples of of God's people, the, the heroes that God has raised up amongst His people. You have Joseph, one of the very few in the entirety of the Bible that doesn't seem to have any failings. But really, through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of those together, your primary heroes, kind of humanly speaking, the ones that we tend to read and go, well, I kind of want to be like those people, the, 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 the protagonists in the story outside of the Lord Himself, have been Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Three relatives that have functionally run the nation of Israel through God's divine decree and divine conversation. Three people that have interacted with the Lord in ways that at this point, up until then, it was really kind of un, uh, unprecedented and unbelievable. Shocking. And remember, this isn't just, you know, managing a, a crew of a couple of hundred like we have here. It's not managing a town of of 75,000 like Fort Mill. Best guess, best estimation that when Moses and Aaron and Miriam led them out of Egypt, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of a million and a half people. Best guess. An insane number. I can't imagine the logistics of trying to handle food and water for that many people. To march them out of Egypt with the Egyptian army on their heels, to then have the Red Sea gobble them up, the enemies of Israel, to destroy the Egyptians. To take them to the mountain where they would meet their God. And to give them God's law. Moses and Aaron and Miriam have been spectacular, particularly considering that is really uh, the second they get out of Egypt's control, uh, the nation of Israel begins to show their true colors. They begin to complain and complain and complain and complain and complain. And even when the Lord kind of gives them visible reminders, you probably shouldn't do that, namely the ground open ups and eat some of them and things like that. They still complain. It's the most shocking thing. I mean, I would think just out of superstition, you just wouldn't do that. Like, I don't know. I'm not going to do what they did. The ground ate them. I don't want to walk that same path. I can't imagine a more <laughs> challenging job than what Moses and Aaron and then kind of secondarily Miriam have had to do. 
to navigate a nation of a million and a half grumblers through the desert for roughly four decades. How long would it have taken you to snap? (laughs) A week? Maybe two? You see, the challenge that we have here in Numbers chapter 20 is that the great heroes in the story, Moses and Aaron and Miriam, have actually, they they tip their hand and they show that they've never actually been the heroes in the story. They're definitely the good guys, but they're not the heroes that we like to pretend that they are. In fact, actually, that kind of becomes this overwhelming theme in Numbers chapter 20 is that our sin is a bigger problem than we realize. Our sin is a much, much bigger problem than we realize. We see it even in how the chapter starts with verse 1, just this kind of, it it feels like, honestly, you know what it feels like? It feels like a footnote, doesn't it? The people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And oh yeah, by the way, Miriam died. Well, yeah, she's dead. One of the greatest women the earth has ever seen, one of the most spectacular women the world has ever seen up at this point in history, and she gets what feels like a footnote. It's just in passing. I am Miriam's dad. Eh. It's said clinically. I, I love it. It doesn't even note that, like, was anybody even sad? It, it, it doesn't even note that they're like, oh, yeah, she's dead. All right. I'm hungry. What do we got to eat? Really, this is actually kind of the consequence of where we've been in previous chapters. You remember that we actually ran into this in, is it uh, 16 or so, where Miriam's actually one of the complainers. She switched sides for a brief period, and she joined in. And remember how she started the most southern thing imaginable? Rather than complain directly about Moses and what God's doing there, she starts in on his foreign wife. You seen that woman he married? She's a foreigner. Oh no, yeah, by the way, I hate Moses too. Spectacular complaint, right? It's the, the wonderful kind of sabotage job that you would never see coming. It's fantastic. The great hero has lived long enough to play the villain and now is dismissed quietly from the story. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Our sin is a bigger deal than what we understand. You see, it's not keeping her from eternal glory. It's not keeping her. She's more lovely than what we could even comprehend right now. For she is, as best we can tell, with God. But her sin has consequences. Even in this life, temporally. In the short term. Now, not in the long term. But her sin costs her her life. Her sin's a big deal. The story continues. The true story, the real historical story continues. And uh, surprisingly and unsurprisingly is what I mean, Israel begins to complain again. 
They've taken out, they've kind of left the the wilderness wandering, and they're preparing to go into the promised land, the land that God has promised to them. It would be theirs, and they're wanting to take the most kind of direct route and to go directly kind of from Sinai up through, backwards, I guess, um, you know, Galilee here to go directly up through Edom into Israel. But in order to get to that, you have to cross a bit of wilderness, and that's where they are. They're at Kadesh, and the people begin to grumble again. And the grumbling is is like, I love how just blunt it is, because you get to see the nonsense of it. Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. If only the ground had eaten me like it ate them. How melodramatic is that? If only I had died in some horrible, terrible fashion, been consumed by fire off the altar, just like other people had. If only. What's wrong with you? What, What is wrong with you people? Have you brought us out here so we can starve to death? Have you brought us out here so that we'll die of dehydration? Our cows are going to die. We don't even have any pomegranates or figs. We have manna, but we don't have the things we want. It's the same old song and dance. It's the same one that Moses and Aaron have been listening to for, at this point, decades, as best we can tell. We've got our timelines right. Moses and Aaron, verse 6, do a, a, a spectacular thing. They don't yell at them. Right? They don't grab them by the lapels and be like, what's wrong with you, person? Did you see the ground eat them? Stop. Instead, Moses and Aaron, they go before the Lord and do what they're supposed to do. And they pray and ask the Lord, beseech the Lord, would you, would you provide? And this is a good thing to do. You think about it. How much water does it take to, to provide for a million and a half people and their cows? We're not, we're not talking about like a little faucet. Most of us, that's kind of in our imagination what happens, right? Moses strikes the rock, and it's like somebody turns on a little faucet. No, 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 no. Like, Moses strikes the rock, and there's a massive lake that shows up. It has to be. An immense amount of water. They go and ask the Lord for the Lord to provide, and the Lord does that. And in fact, actually does it with just the visible reminder to them. Verse 8, he says, look, take Aaron's staff. Remember, this is the staff that, as proof of God's love, in just a, a previous couple of chapters, he turned it into a, a blossoming and fruiting almond tree. Right, that's the kind of staff I want to walk around with. How cool is that, right? A walking stick where the top of it, you know, bottom of this walking stick, not planted, top of it's a living tree that's producing almonds. How cool. In fact, it's so cool they keep it in the Ark of the Covenant the most of the time. It's not only that cool, but it's that holy And they say, take this amazing staff, a reminder of how much God loves his people and how much God loves Moses and Aaron, and go in front of them and tell the rock to make water. Tell the rock, it's time to take care of my people. You don't have to hit it. You don't have to be angry. There's no need to get bent out of shape. I know the complainers. I'll deal with them later. Just go tell them the Lord loves you and he's going to provide. So Moses does that, right? You read that, didn't you? No, no, he doesn't do that, does he? It's like finally they got him. 
After all the years, they finally broke the man. And rather than just walking out in front of them and holding up the staff, this is a proof of God's love. He loves you. He cares for you. He's, he's taking care of his people. Here's water. Rock, it's time to produce water. Instead of doing that, what does he do? Verse 10. Here now, you rebels! He yells at them. Whoa, whoa, I'm sorry, Moses. That was unexpected. Shall we bring water out of this rock for you? Interesting, his, his assessment statement doesn't even involve the Lord at all. It's not an, an address of, hey, God's going to do this thing. It's not an address of, look, the Lord loves you. He's been providing manna for you for how many decades at this point? He's made sure that you have not died unless it was your time. He's been your provider. Instead, it's intensely human-focused, and he gets angry, and he loses his temper and he begins to hit the rock with the staff of promise. And instantly, the water's there, and it's provided. The Lord answers the prayer. But the Lord, in verse 12, explains that Moses' sin is still a problem. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Wait, what now? I mean, if anybody deserves to be angry at a people group, it's Moses and Aaron at the people of Israel. But interestingly, the Lord says, no, 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 no. Because what did you do? You lost your temper and you insulted my people and raged at my people. All the while you were holding my promises as proof. You, you blended my promises and your temper. And that's not holy, friends. You blended my good name and your bad temper. And that's a problem. Our sin is a bigger problem than we realize. And what's the consequence? Well, they don't get to go into the promised land. Because of that, because you did this, you're not going to be the one that takes them into the promised land. You'll come up to the edge, you'll see it, but you don't get to go in. There are consequences, even as a Christian, there are consequences for your sin. Our sin is a bigger deal than we realize. In fact, you skip to verse 22. They can't go into Edom. Remember, Edom is the hill country. If you remember your Indiana Jones, when they go into the wonderfully carved building right there in the wall, that's Petra, that's the capital of Edom, uh, or one of the major cities of Edom. Um, they can't pass that way, and so they pass to another part, and uh, we don't exactly know where this mountain is, which one we have three good guesses. They go to Mount Hor, and what happens? The Lord explains, your sin is still an issue. You mixed my good name and your bad temper, and it will cost Aaron his life. So go up on the mountain. Take his son, the next high priest, 
take his priestly garments off of Aaron, place the priestly garments on Eliezer, and Aaron drops dead. I'm going to be honest with you, these are not my favorite chapters of the Bible to try to preach. I like to preach the ones where uh, they have all of the sweet promises. Uh, Psalm 121 is my, one of my favorites. And the Lord, he'll, he'll never leave you. He watches over you day after day and night after night. While you slumber and sleep, he never will. I, I love that. I love the promises. Romans 8 There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. I I love the promises that if I've got the Spirit of God in me, I I, I can't pass away and perish ultimately. I love those promises at the end that nothing in all of creation can separate me from the love of God. I love, I love preaching those. But the content of Numbers chapter 20 is no less important that sin is a really big deal, like a really big deal. And in our kind of current cultural moment, we don't like to deal with the idea of wrongdoing unless it's crossed some politically correct boundary. And increasingly, as a Christian church, we're seeing Christians that are are finding more comfort in defining what's right and wrong by political or cultural standards than a willingness to go to the Bible. And increasingly, we're seeing those that profess the name of Christ to talk about sin in, in such a flippant way like it's not that big of a deal. Well, I mean, it's like, it's tacky. I mean, yeah, you shouldn't do that. Or to talk about it like it's just not good for you to do that. Like eating McDonald's every meal. Well, you probably shouldn't do that. It's probably not good for you. No kidding. But we've lost this kind of larger overarching emphasis that God hates sin. He hates it. He hates it so much that the three people on the planet that are most important to them, he can't ignore even theirs. He hates sin. The three people that have been the only three in leadership that haven't made a mess of things yet make a mess of things, and he has to deal with that. This is an amazing chapter because he doesn't deal with Israel at all. The people grumble and complain again. He doesn't deal with them at all. He's, he's teaching that every sin matters. Every single sin matters. And when you lose that idea, that's how we get these kind of nonsense answers that we see in our culture all the time where you you ask people, what's going to happen when you die? And they say, well, I'm going to go to heaven because I'm I'm a good person. Wow, great. I'm fairly confident Moses would qualify as a good person. I mean, aside from the murder prior to being one. Aaron certainly qualifies. Miriam too. I mean, she was a gossip, but, I mean, we're in the South. Who's not? (laughs) 
And what do we do? We, we fall into that thinking where we say, well, I, I'm just not that bad. I mean, they're bad. Have you seen them? But I'm not. I'm not. All sin is bad. This actually, I think, becomes a little bit kind of more emotionally significant if we begin to pay attention to what sins actually they suffer for. Miriam talked trash about Moses' foreign wife and complained against God. Moses and Aaron lost their temper at the most obnoxious, stubborn, difficult people on God's green earth. And I think it's fairly safe to say for those that have been parents in the room, you understand at least in some small way what that feeling feels like. Or if you've been young married, or if you've ever been placed in a situation with a difficult boss or difficult coworker where you're like, they are just, the, they are the biggest pain in my neck. They're on my last nerve, they're making me crazy, and it's all their fault. And interestingly, it is all of Israel's fault. Yet interestingly, the one time that Moses loses his temper is enough. The one time. What does the, Ed- the Edomites, what do the, the Edomites do? This is an interesting one. There was a main thoroughfare trade way called the King's Highway that passed through Edom up from Egypt all the way in to Israel. The Israelites ask, hey, we're kin. These people are cousins to Israel. They've been uh, from the same family tree and not Noah and Adam only, more than that. They're cousins and say, hey, by the way, we'd like to pass through your land. We're geographically here. Geographically, we want to go here, and we'd like to follow this highway. It, it makes really good sense. It would be the equivalent of saying, we, we would like to travel from Charlotte to Greenville via 85. Makes good sense. And the Edomites are like, no, you can take 95 down to I-20. You can drive through Columbia. Wait, what? You're going to send us that far out of the way? We're going to drive to Greenville via Myrtle Beach? Are you serious? We're going to see Charleston en route to headed to Greenville? That's a terrible idea. That's exactly what they're doing. The Edomites just simply refuse to give them access to an easy and obvious path. You just can't use the road. They don't help Israel when it's opportunity. Now, notice, let, let's, be, let's be honest. Miriam dies because she complains about God's people. Moses dies because he loses his temper once with God's people. Edom as a nation is taken off the face of the earth because they don't help God's people. And Aaron dies immediately because he lost his temper once with God's people. Do we detect a reoccurring theme here? 
Every sin matters. Sins against God and sins against his people are really important. Like really important. The Lord loves his people so much. He he loves us with a, a full and rich and robust love. He loves us so much that he will not tolerate us treating each other like trash. That is unacceptable. And as a result, proof here, three of what I suspect are his five most favorite people on the planet. I know he doesn't have favorites, but the holy ones that are being obedient. He doesn't show favoritism. Three of the five die. So Caleb and Joshua are the only ones that are going to be left by the end of the story. Friends, I know that this isn't the kind of heartwarming and encouraging message at this point yet. But your sin is a really big deal. That's why we get passages in the New Testament that say things like, hating even the garment stained with sin. That, that, that we, we hate it so much. We don't, we don't, even, we don't even touch the garment that has it on it. Last week, went out and played disc golf. Threw a bad shot and threw it directly into the poison ivy. Now, some of you know I'm dreadfully allergic to poison ivy. I walked up and looked at it. No, nope, I just walked away and left it. I didn't, didn't even go after the shot, just left it. Walked away from free money. I could see it. It was right there. There's my disc. It's knee deep in poison ivy. I'm wearing shorts. I, I hate it so much. I'm just going to walk away from it. I'll leave it. Somebody may find it later. I'm not touching it. I hate poison ivy so much. I'll lose one of my favorite discs and just walk away. Cost me money. Don't care. You see, the interesting thing is, is as much as God hates our sin, it's like we somehow have a disconnect in our head kind of as, a, as kind of an American Christian church, and we just stop doing that. And we're like, I mean, sin's probably bad, but I kind of like it. I mean, I kind of I like it a lot. And we've forgotten that that's actually part of the reason why we're still alive here. Have you ever thought about that? When you become a Christian, why does God not just kill you right on the spot? I mean, it'd be a pretty sweet deal. You'd know immediately who became a Christian. Right? Evangelize somebody. I, I think I'd like to become a Christian. Poof, they're dead and they go straight to heaven. It'd be awesome. It'd be weird. Probably socially awkward, but it'd be cool. Part of the reason why God doesn't do that to you, though, is so that you will live out his holiness here. That his holiness gets to be shown in you here. It's why you're alive. It's one of your purposes. It's your personal mission in life is to show what his holiness looks like in this life. And friends, some of us, are we're so in love with the world and so in love with our sin that that's a foreign idea because we don't think sin's that much of a problem. You think, well, I know somebody's probably complaining in the room Complaints the wrong word. Thinking through this in the room. If the Lord loves his people, why does he punish them like this? 
If the Lord loves his people so much, if he, if he loves Moses and Aaron and Miriam, which we know he does, why does he treat them like this? And part of it, friends, is to teach us and to teach them that sin matters. Part of it, friends, is to teach them the need of a Savior. And that Savior's name is not Moses. He's not the high priest Aaron. He's not going to be Eliezer. He's not going to be any of those that would follow in this line now. In fact, actually, the way that Hebrews puts it is they need a priest of a different kind, of a different priesthood altogether from Melchizedek. They need Christ Jesus who's going to show up, the only one who can deal with sin and resolve it completely. But it it, it keeps us reliant upon Christ, and it, it keeps us from being comfortable in our sin. The old Puritan line, you better be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So many of us, we don't even think about killing our sin, and we have no idea that it's poisoning us constantly. It's like we're going every day out to work at Chernobyl and paying no attention to the radiation, not expecting that one day it will catch up with us. Part of what the lesson here in Numbers chapter 20 is to understand the gravity of sin. The other thing is actually to to understand the Lord does love his people. What he's doing in Numbers chapter 20 is spectacularly loving. And you're like, how is that possible? (laughs) How is that possible? Because the interesting thing is that Moses, Aaron, and Miriam all let him down. They all sin flagrantly, they all sin publicly, and they all sin against God and his people. And how does he punish them? What what sort of discipline does he administer to them? He takes them to his presence. He takes them and and brings them to him. And brings them close. To be with him. To be joined to him. To be in his very presence. It would be like if you had teenagers in the house and you caught one of your teenagers doing something exceptionally wicked, just horrible. All right, you know the the natural disciplines that come out, you're grounded forever, right? Uh, Give me your phone, give me your keys. You're in trouble. And interestingly, what God's doing is not, he's not grounding them forever. He's not, he's not just, kind of in a petty fashion dealing with them. He's saying, your discipline is that you get to come be with me. Where there is no sin, where there is no sadness, where there is no suffering, where there is no sickness, where there is no growing old, where there is no insecurity, where there is no impatience, where there is no grief. Does this sound like a bad deal, friends? Where he's actively removing from them every bad thing in their life. That's how much he loves his people. Now, there's a really awkward contrast in the middle, though. Miriam, verse 1, is taken to the Lord's side. 
Aaron, verses 20 through 22 through 29, is taken to the Lord's side. Moses gets his discipline, but it doesn't happen until later. He's still alive, but it's coming. But in the middle of it, you have this really awkward contrast of Edom. Edom is that kind of person that's in the proximity of God, but doesn't know him. They're kind of related to Israel. They're cousins to Israel, but they're not a part of the people of God. Edom is in so many ways the stereotypical southerner. I've been around the church. I've heard all the language of the church. I may have even been in the church, but I do not know Jesus. And the interesting thing is what happens to Edom. We don't get the actual punishment administered here. It's not told to us here, but it is told in other parts. Psalm 83, Edom is picked up as the primary illustration of those that do not know the Lord. The psalmist says, for they conspire with one accord against you. They made a covenant, the tents of Edom, the Ishmaelites, Moabites, the Hagrites. they're they're, They're the portrait of the unbeliever. And so what does God do with this nation of unbelievers? Jeremiah 49, Isaiah 34, the entire book of Obadiah, Malachi chapter 1 verse 4, Ezekiel chapter 25, Ezekiel chapter 36. This nation is promised to be wiped off the face of the earth. And if you weren't a Bible scholar in the room or have your study Bible open, would you even know where Edom is today? Would you be able to go visit one of their cities? In fact, actually, I already mentioned the only famous kind of, you know, piece of architecture from their entire nation. The the great carvings in Petra. It's where they had, what, the chalice or whatever. Anybody know what that piece of architecture actually is? It's a tomb. The only thing left standing of this entire nation is a tomb where they buried their dead. You see, that's actually the contrast here, is that the Lord loves his people so much that even his discipline at its heart is motivated by love and is an outworking of his love. It's protecting his holiness, but it is his love being worked out. However, for his enemies, for Edom, for those that do not know him and will never know him, it is complete and total destruction. Some of you in the room, right now, you look a bit more like Edom than maybe you ought. Some of you in the room, you're in that category of a person who's been near the church. You've been near Jesus, but you don't know him. Children, This is particularly aimed at you. There's always a a great danger in a church like this that believes our children so much. We love our children to be part of things, but the danger is that you ride mom and dad's faith and don't ever develop your own. For those of you in that category, I worry for you. I pray for you. Tom and I pray for you every Friday morning. 
Because it's a terrible thing to be under the judgment of the Lord. You see, it looks like on some kind of the surface level, everybody here gets the same end because they all die. (laughs) One of those grim chapters in the Bible, everybody's dead at the end. Shakespeare knew where he was writing from, right? But it couldn't be more different because some people in the story are dead at the end but with every joy imaginable. And some are dead at the end with destruction. The big dividing line between the two is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The way, the truth, and the life. And friends, he gives that salvation freely. The Bible is very clear. How do you change from one camp to the other? How do you know the Lord? Well, you call upon his name. You ask. Ask for his mercy. Ask for his help. Ask that you would even know what to ask for. And he gives freely. If you find yourself in this situation, please come talk to me. Talk to Brandon. Talk to one of the elders in the church. If you find yourself in the circumstance where you're like, Michael, I I know I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for a long time. Praise God, I'm glad. Maybe together we could treat our sin with a little bit more seriousness instead of it just being a thing we joke about. Maybe it could be a thing we try to kill. Right? If it costs the Lord Jesus his life, probably not something I should treat flippantly, right? Father, we thank you for your word. Even the passages that don't make us happy. Because just because they don't make us happy, it doesn't mean they're not true. And we pray, O oh Lord, that we would treat sin seriously and that we would find our only hope in Christ and in Christ alone. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.